0: So I'll just say in short that wonder is like, it is the emotional, cognitive, aesthetic experience that most cracks us open to what is real and to what is here and what is true. It is the experience that opens us up to that. It's at the heart of the creative impulse. And once I started to understand that, I also realized that it was wonder as part of what I've been pursuing all along that when I was grieving my imagination, it was in part that
1: desire to have that space of wonder. When this week's guest, Jeffrey Davis, was just a little kid, he started journaling and thinking about paying attention and not losing his imagination. Pretty unusual for a young kid. That turned into a deep fascination with language and creativity that led him to become a poet and a teacher. But in the middle of his life, he also realized that he was living essentially from the neck up and kind of in disembodied existence and had left his heart and his body behind. So that set him off on a journey of deep personal discovery and also international travel. And he came back with a renewed vision on life and a renewed vision of what he wanted to do with his life. He's since Returned to poetry and to teaching. And he started a really fascinating consulting firm called Tracking Wonder, which really helps people track wonder in their own lives and bring more of it into their careers, their professions, and every essence of their day. So, really excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Thank mm-hmm. you. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. It's so good to be hanging out with you, man. You too. On a Friday afternoon at uh, HQ on the Upper West Side. Yeah, Jeffrey Davis. Where did we meet? I'm trying to remember this.
0: Um, probably. I think somebody introduced us on Twitter years ago, and then you said, "Hey, let's." Go get some coffee. I think when you were living outside of the city, yeah, up in the Bronx, right, right, yeah, or yeah, maybe in Westchester on the in Riverdale, uh, Hudson, yeah. yeah, in Riverdale, yeah. A K, yeah. it's actually the Bronx. No, AK, it's, it's the yes, fake thank Bronx. You. Yes, exactly. It's the no. real, real it's not, Bronx.
1: Not, you can't tell. Centrified Bronx. Lives. <laughs> right. You tell <laughs> someone who really lives in the Bronx that you live in really, the they're like, dude, please. <laughs>
0: I remember we had (laughs) nice coffee and (laughs) Um, people lounging on the side. Right.
1: We actually went up to Hastings.
0: Yeah, that's where it was. To
1: Antoinette's, where there was like awesome, yes. Awesome brew and no bathroom. That's right, exactly. So right. You, you had to drive me around, like right? several... How I do mean, you have a place where you caffeinate <laughs> and, it's and then not have a bathroom? Right? No ba- how do they get away with <laughs> that? <you? laughs> That's how you know it's really good coffee. That's right. right. <laughs> <That's where laughs> people like are the, willing. <laughs> the only way you could ever like pull that off is it was mind-blowing cappuccino. Yeah. That's right. No, I remember that now. Um, yeah, and I think we just kind of stayed in the loop. And... Yeah, Very cool. Yeah. So... So it's fun for me to do this, especially with the people who are friends who I've known for a little bit, because now I actually get to grill you with all the inappropriate questions that would feel weird and awkward if we were just hanging out over a cup of coffee. Yeah, it's a very comforting introduction. I'm excited. <laughs> 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 I already told you you're not leaving without crying. So. That's right. <laughs> um, so I know you as the guy who uh, started this really interesting consultancy called Tracking Wonder and is mad crazy about books and literature and writing and... Let's take a step back in time. You're a Texas kid. I am a Texas kid. Where'd you actually come up? What part of Texas? Fort Worth. Fort Worth, Texas. Say that that again. Fort Worth. That's how you'd say it. Yeah, that's how you'd say it. Do you? All right. So immediately. Fifth generation Texan. So so you don't have that accent anymore. No, but if I went
0: back. Semi, semi-trained. My my mother claims that I lost it in Austin, as if that were another world. But that kind of <laughs> <laughs> Austin is
1: <laughs> not Texas by any measure that no, I know. Well,
0: but I think in my twenties, as I was um, as I was teaching, I was probably becoming more self-conscious. One of my professor mentors was kind of training us on our language as we were speaking, and so I think over the years in my twenties, I started to lose it, and I kind of regret it now. Like I, I kind of wish I had that draw. But if I get back around my mother who says "hayam" with three syllables, I'll, you know, my tongue will start to get low. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: That's pretty cool, yeah. actually. So what were you tell me about growing up. Really, like as a growing kid. up in Texas. Yeah. Or
0: growing up. Yeah, there's so many ways to look at what it was like. For I want to know what Texas. Jeffrey
1: Davis the yeah. kid was, the yeah. nine-year-old I kid. Was,
0: I was the poet in a, in a Texan's body. You know, kinda of looking back, I was um quiet, moody, The
1: dressed one kid
0: the one kid in kindergarten actually dressed in psychedelic Paisley pants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um the one kid in through all of fifth grade who had long shoulder length hair, the one boy, you know, and the mother's calling my mother saying, Would you please have him cut his hair? Because now Patrick wants his hair long. <laughs> <laughs> so So I was this quiet kid who kind of did his own thing, um, really leaned into you know, kind of the imaginative realm, drawing, story. I could be completely at home by myself for hours, but Wait. then completely run out
1: into the woods. Where does it. the outlier personality come from?
0: Probably both of my parents in retrospect. Like I looked at my father, who was in the Dallas media world. And his, his father, whom I never met, he died when my father was 14, mm. was a medical doctor, um... Grew up in the mountains of Alabama, served both world wars, and was also a poet. Um, my father was in Dallas media world, incredibly creative, just like never really appreciated it or knew it. What did he actually do? Um, he was he was in advertising. So he right. would do different campaigns for his clients. And he was in, um, in the 80s and 90s. He was in the sports realm of uh, Dallas radio. Got so he's always right there with the Dallas Cowboys, shaping their campaigns, kind of Cha- just, changing just, song lyrics into
1: advertisements. Yeah, this was a time, by the way, as a New Yorker, I was like bound to hate the yeah, Dallas exactly, Cowboys. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right, exactly. So, sorry so your dad that. was probably part of the messaging that like brought that on, <laughs> which my, is good though.
0: No, it was good. And my father was a guy who just like, he knew how to play. And so he wasn't a big sports enthusiast, but he completely knew how to sell sports mm. and how to how to play it and how to love it intensely enough to know that
1: it's- it's just a game. Yeah. So he was a word guy then also.
0: Yeah, very much a word guy from early on. So he, um, you know, it's interesting because in one light, I wouldn't see him as very visible in my life until I was about 14. But on the other hand, he would do certain things like when I was six or seven, we would always play word games. And um, he gave me his father's day book. It was like from 1948 That is that his father kept appointments in that. His father had given to him and said, you know, keep your diary in here. So I'm seven years old and he says, here, use this as a diary. And I'm like, what's a diary? I can barely write my name at the time, but I was a good reader. And he's like, well, you keep your thoughts in there. And if something happens to you during the day, you want to remember it, you write it down. And that was complete news to me that I had thoughts uh, that actually people do that, that they write down their ideas. But I could barely write my name. Hmm. So I actually remember... Around that time, um, I had that book. I was out on the sidewalk of Texas and um, in my neighborhood. And Teresa Stubblefield walks up. And and uh, so Teresa is about 14. I'm probably six or seven. I had a whole older half sister. So Teresa was my older sister's friend. Had a major crush on Teresa and she knew it. And she's, you know, she's cozying up to me and and, and playing it. And I tell her about the book and she says, so what do you want to write in it? And she's like, I'll write it down for you. So, you know, Jeffrey Davis's first writing, which was actually dictated, said something like, my name is Jeffrey. I love Teresa. Teresa loves me. When Teresa turns 18, she will freeze herself. When I turn 18, I will unfreeze myself and we will get married. So there you go. <laughs> my first poem.
1: <laughs> story, right. It's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Exactly. Perfect.
0: With my father's influence. My mother um, really tuned in, too, to my quietness and would circulate me around Fort Worth Art Museums on a regular basis. We didn't have a lot of money. We were middle class, so she was always finding ways to engage me and so during the summers like once a week i would have my choice of different art museums mm-hmm. and she would take me to the kimball and ask me questions as we're standing in front of you know paintings and so she got that i was this what we would say now very introspective creative kid and she was finding ways to kind of tap into
1: that and nurture it mm, that's beautiful you said you weren't really aware of your dad being super present in your life until you're 14 what happened when you're 14
0: When I was 13, they divorced and um, he, you know, so we lived in Fort Worth. He worked in Dallas, which, you know, is only a 45 minute drive. And yet at the time it was two different worlds. So he spent a lot of time working and entertaining his clients. And when I was 14, he invited me to live with him. So throughout high school, I lived with my bachelor father. What's that like? <laughs> and it always, it was, I mean, because I mean, this is a time
1: also where that that really didn't happen.
0: No, no, it's true. And um, and it's true. And we, uh, my parents were kind of one of the first, it seems like, in my circle of friends who had divorced from my recollection. And then for me to live just with my bachelor father, you know, in this kind of, you know, middle class neighborhood in Fort Worth. Well, you know, as I got older, by the time I was 15, I had a hardship license to drive because I always had a job since I was about 15. Very much on my own, actually, throughout my teenage years as he was more and more in Dallas. But on the other hand, Jonathan, I look, so I've i told people what it was like to live with my dad. And they're like, oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> because he did, he did adore me. But remember, his father died when he was 14. Mm. And so he never had his bearings, I don't think, as In terms of being a father, he wanted to be my friend, my chum, and we would go traveling every summer. He would take me to the Dallas Cowboys engagements, and I would meet all of my football heroes. So it was a blast on one hand, and on the other hand, I just completely learned how to figure out a lot on my own.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was more like, hey, we're going out with, like, a buddy.
0: <laughs> yeah, Almost. exactly. No, it's really yeah. what, what he wanted. He wanted to be my friend. And yeah. there was, you know, and my friends all wanted him as a father. Yeah, right. <laughs> And I kind of wanted the father who would provide and, like, tell me about my future or, like, right. like give me some advice. The fatherly so, type of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. He passed away four summers ago. Mm-hmm. And I think in ah, – I so appreciate him. I appreciate the best in him over and over again now. And I think sometimes in retrospect, you know, as a teenager, you're rebelling one way or another. And I was still rebelling against like, I'm not going to be like him. I'm not going to be
1: like him. And yet, I hope and think I've got the best in him. Mm, be. yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And no matter what, the older I get to realize you are gonna be you like are <laughs> it's completely like kicking and screaming the bad, like whatever it's like, you know yeah. what? Yeah. No, I know. There are the ties with unavoidable. <laughs> it's true. like I hear stuff coming out of my mouth, like speaking to my daughters. So I'm like oh, I am my father <laughs> in in, yeah. certain yeah. in certain ways. In certain ways I'm very different, but in certain know, ways. But yeah, it's a it's always like it is so interesting how that that trickles down and through you, and there's just some stuff which is like DNA deep.
0: It is. It's yeah. DNA deep. It's patterned and cultured, and still, like any time that I say, "Oh my God," and my father out loud, Hillary's like, "Honey, you are not your father." Mm. Okay, so as my wife says, so she's got a good sort of
1: yeah. So you're hanging out with your dad and uh, and doing all the manly things, the Texas manly things. But as how are you nurturing, now that you're away from your mom, yeah. since she was the one that really nurtured that introspective contemplative sort of like artistic side, what's happening with that? Like,
0: Yeah, that's um, a really good perspective because I would say on one hand during those teenage years, kind of on my own, figuring things out, the tight social circle of Westside Fort Worth, I'm doing kind of what Susan Cain says at the end of her book, Quiet, and I'm really learning how to fake being an extrovert, and I'm doing it pretty well. But on the other hand, I'm spending hours alone at home and I can remember taking – I had a white German shepherd growing up, Duchess, and I can remember always taking her to this park where, you know, as as Fort Worth was growing, there was this kind of ledge that overlooked a remaining – patch of land, you know, with trees and so mm-hmm. forth. So I was always drawn to the woods and always drawn to that sort of horizon thing. And I remember going out there for a long time, I still was keeping my notebooks as a teenager. Uh, so I thought I was going to write my autobiography at 10, you know, because I'd led such an important life. And then as a teenager, I started keeping those notebooks again. And I remember around that time writing in my notebook at like 16, 17 years old, Still kind of obsessed with the weird sort of social world of, of high school that I was grieving my imagination. I can almost remember the day of being probably 16 or 17 and feeling as if um, the world used to feel so metaphorical to me, right? The woods would become, you know, some other land. And I can remember at 16, 17 privately feeling as if I were losing my imagination. And grieving that,
1: why, what was happening? I think you just
0: you change neurologically hormonally you're by the time you're nine or ten years old, you're already developing a certain degree of awareness mm-hmm. that you're I, I really think you're just your neurochemistry starts to change right. and and you become more concerned about social things and so
1: forth, yeah, that's definitely isn't there also um trying to remember this doing some reading recently about you know there's sort of a there's a pruning effect that starts in your brain i think right around that time also i could be right around that
0: that time it's the pruning effect what's
1: that um it's sort of like there's a there's a a mass um expansion of neural connections that happen when you're really young yeah and then once you hit a certain age, you know, it's almost like it's too much to sustain yeah. and yeah. There, it's, it, there's a pruning effect that starts to happen. Yeah. Not that you can't form new connections, but, but you you know, there's a certain f- amount of efficiency that has to start to embed.
0: Yeah. And so I, I love that because I want to drill down into that and just say that whenever somebody says that schools are killing the imagination, I think it's unfair to our biology. Mm. That in part, there's just this natural development. And, and I haven't studied the, the pruning effect, but it makes complete sense in terms of just survival as a teenager. You need some filters. And so I was writing kind of like vividly and adamantly trying to keep alive my imagination. It really wasn't until maybe two or three years later in college where I said, okay, I'm going to try to find some way to keep alive my imagination. That was through writing, through poetry.
1: Was, was writing the mm. mechanism to keep your imagination alive yes. or was imagining, okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. It Very consciously was um, these sort of, and I never talked to anybody about these desires of like keeping alive my imagination or like I had this fondness like uh, of camp, of summer camp. I, I went to summer camp every summer and, My experience at summer camp was that days were so charged and so alive that I would replay the days in my memory every day, like what happened from the moment I woke up until the Mm. time I went to sleep. And then when I was back in school, I would still replay those. So I had two desires pretty consciously by the time I was an undergrad, which was to keep alive my imagination and to try to pay attention to my days. Like I was keeping notebooks Constantly, I would go to the uh, co-op and buy these artist notebooks, trying to pay attention to the day. What? And so writing was a – so to answer your question, writing and poetry, I can remember, you know, taking lit lit courses as uh, a freshman. And then a sophomore, really around 20, things became more conscious. Like, I'm not – my friends – We're going down the right path into business, on for an MBA or pre-law or pre-med, marketing, accounting. And I went left my sophomore year and said, do you know what? I'm going into the humanities (laughs) and English and poetry. There were a few certain poems that just opened up a world of paying attention. That's the best I can say it. It was like the poems were so ordinary and yet there were poems that awaken something in me to pay attention and for whatever reasons at age 20 that's what i wanted to do and so poetry became really the mechanism to help me
1: pay attention mm. it's it sounds and,
0: really weird to articulate this and i don't know well, if it's i've also, ever
1: talked about it before it's it's also really interesting that you had that this mattered to you so much at such a young age because it's something i don't think i think almost nobody thinks about at any point during their lives let alone coming out of their teen years and going into college where usually you're as close to mindless as (laughs) you know you're just like
0: that's party and not surrounded Um, by people who are are like hey let's hang out and talk about poetry
1: (laughs) so the fact that you know um, which makes me really curious why did it matter so much for you to be aware why did it matter so much for you to keep your creativity alive and was what was the thing in you that that felt it dying, that made you need to respond?
0: Yeah, it. I don't know. So I'll just explore it out loud with you. You know, 19, 20 years old, I'm not at home, so to speak, in my surroundings anymore and with my social circles. I'm already wondering what my future is at 19 or 20, and I'm looking down the road, and I'm like, hmm, I don't necessarily want that path, whatever that path is. And at that time it was like business, and you're going to get married and you'll have kids, which I've circled back around to. So,
1: was but, that path in your mind, the path of forsaking creativity and imagination? Yeah, yeah, okay. I think
0: so. And, it was, and forsaking meaning, right? right, yeah. So that was my framework, my sort of broken framework. But that was kind of like the only path. And then I was like, I want something else. And I didn't know what that something else was. I just knew I wanted something else. And so I was a guy who... You know, my friends would call me the mystery guy because I would take off and go up to Mount Bonnell, which is the highest point in Austin. And again, it was sort of that horizon thing. I would go out and hang out on Mount Bonnell and look out at the horizon and wonder like, where am I going? What am I going to do? And all that I could come up with was, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to write. And, mm-hmm. and somehow have quote meaning in my life. And I know looking back at all of my colleagues and friends who are kind of going through this questioning now, I realize what an anomaly it yeah. is for me to say that at 2021, 20, that's those it, were the questions I was It really
1: is. To. It really, especially because it sounds like it really was driven by, a, you know, the classic existential quest for meaning and at, a, at an age where people just usually are so not tapped into that, let alone the fact that most people are never tapped into it. Like you said, you know, most of us do get there. Classic midlife crisis is, is a crisis of meaning. It's
0: completely true. And I was studying existential philosophy as an undergrad. Right. And of course. And of
1: course. And do you have like, your beret turned backwards <laughs> with like your beatnik glasses? And I'm seeing you as a beat poet, although you're a little bit late for that. No, it's true.
0: And I was attracted to the beats in some respect for their defiance. And then I wasn't so interested in the sort of beat culture. And I wasn't interested in all their suffering and so forth. So, but there w- the, but there was something in me that wanted, you know, that Paisley pant-wearing kid wanted something different, gotta yeah. do his own thing.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by LinkedIn ads. So have you ever felt the challenge of reaching a key decision maker in the B2B world? Imagine connecting with a Billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders. Well, LinkedIn Ads provides precision targeting and measurement tools tailored for B2B marketers outperforming other platforms with two to five times higher ROAS in technology. Plus, 79% of B2B content marketers vouch for LinkedIn Ads' exceptional paid media results. What sets LinkedIn Ads apart is their understanding of the complex B2B landscape. They have built a platform to support you through intricate decision-making processes. Processes. I've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times to help grow our work focused venture, Spark Endeavors, and I've been seriously impressed by the performance. So if you're ready to elevate your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads, make B2B marketing everything it can be, and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash good life project to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash good life project, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is supported by Dell. So seasons change. So why not your tech? Upgrade now during the Dell Technologies Summer Sale event and save on select PCs like the XPS 16 powered by Intel Core processors. You'll be able to bring your most intensive project to life with built-in AI, minimalistic design, immersive visuals, and cinematic audio. Plus complete your dream setup with deals on select monitors, mice, and more must have electronics and accessories. When you shop at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to exceptional tech and electronics, plus free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at dell.com slash deals. That's dell.com slash deals or just click the link in the show notes. So who were you reading back then? Who were, you, who were the poets who, who lit you up? You know,
0: some of the standard 20th century poets even before the beats like William Carlos Williams who actually had an, a direct influence on Allen Ginsberg. So William Carlos Williams grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. He was a children's doctor and on his walk from his nice Patterson, New Jersey house to his office, he would keep a notebook and write kind of simple poems, but poems geared to try to find. He wanted a poetry of American language and not overly romantic from what had preceded him. And he was, he's the one who writes the poem, The Red Wheelbarrow, right? That is so basic and you're like, that's not a poem, but it's so much depends upon. The red wheelbarrow, glazed with rain water beside the white chickens. Now, that poem was one of those poems I was talking about that woke something up in me that said there's a world somehow in there of poetry and poetics and being a poet and of paying attention that I want to be a part of. So I was reading William Carlos Williams and then Wallace Stevens and then Robert Creeley is a little bit more contemporary. Um, Wallace Stevens was one who would just kind of transform the ordinary into the extraordinary, into the imaginative. And that's what lit me up. Mm. That's where I started to find home.
1: Yeah. And you never really left that. I never
0: really left it. Now, right? So it's, I would what, say, you know, there were detours of intensity, certainly yeah. really intense in my
1: twenties. Yeah, 30s. but it seems like that's been the threat. I mean, and it sounds like, you know, it sounds like you approach in a lot of different ways, and you know, and you've shared and you've written about the fact that you sort of you spent the next decade or so becoming part of the poetic intelligentsia. Yeah, that's and, right. Like, being utterly in your head. <laughs> so take take me there a little bit. Oh yeah, completely. <laughs> so yeah, in my twenties,
0: I was devoted to. Poetry, poetics, being the best writer I could be, being the best teacher I could be, and very intellectual. So, um, and co founded an institute called the Walden Institute, kind of after one of my heroes at the time, Thoreau. Right. It was devoted to the study of human potential. So, this is the early 90s and the human potential movement. We're studying existential psychology, humanist psychology, Abraham Maslow and Joseph Campbell's work and mythology and some of the Eastern traditions, trying to Like study, like what is our potential as human beings? But yeah, very intellectual. so my poetics also were pretty abstract, experimental. And yet one collection, City Reservoir, I wrote at a sort of another crisis time. I'm in Dallas. Okay. So went to school in Austin, undergrad, went to grad school, University of Texas at Dallas. Continued to teach in Dallas, Dallas culture, poet in Dallas culture. And I'm getting pretty suffocated. And I say, okay, either I'm going to leave and become a monk somewhere, and I was literally looking at monasteries in the Southwest, Mm. or I'm going to figure out how to stay here as a poet. And so I gave myself this project that I would call Day Poems. I would wake up first thing in the morning, listen to the sort of rhythm in my mind, and try to capture throughout the day threads that would gradually form into a day poem, and then later shape them. They're pretty abstract, pretty experimental. Do you remember any? I not I, I can't memorize it. them.
1: That's pretty hard, yeah. And it's like the worst thing to ask a poet. Right. It's like, just recite something from there. It's like, please. Do you know, like, of the, of the hundred that you've read, there are 10 million that I've trashed, and they're all swirling that's around in right. my head. That's right.
0: That's exactly right. So that's kind of where I was. I was kind of this disembodied poet, and I, but really trying to be grounded, in mm. part, through poetry and poetics. And I even taught a seminar on poetics of the body it was like i so know that there is a world below my chin and i'm going to
1: find it sometime. (laughs) but that is the risk right because like so often any any art form you know, is, is begun as this quest for going deeper into your own existence, the big questions in life, uh, discovering who you are, your voice, and then expressing it in a way, you know, and bring yourself fully to the world. And it ends up this, it, it ends up moving further and further away from your heart and further and further yeah. out of your, you know, an embodied presence and further and further up, you know, like you said, above the neck. And it just becomes this, you know, constantly in your head, intellectual, thing, which you can just lose yourself in that space and forget about the fact that sometimes the thing that started this all was the quest for the exact opposite.
0: That's so true. It's so true. And I find, you know, I just went to a wonderful conference and festival of very activist poets down in Washington, D.C. And I sat in on some panels and and I was aware again, all of a sudden, of the intellectual. Poet and, I, and the theorizing, right? I, before you even move past that yeah. activist poet. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, really, I'm not What is that? Yeah, poets from Nigeria, poets from all around the world. So you look at even, I mean, there are poets in Cameroon, mm-hmm. right? South of Nigeria who've been in prison for speaking out against their African government
1: okay, so these are Chinese These poets are too. poets who are, are also activists and they write. That's right, um, exactly. Okay, I yeah. thought you meant activists like, you know, like more poetry. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably that <laughs> too, right? right. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, it makes more sense. Yeah, now, good, now, good, okay. Thanks for that clarification
0: because right, probably your listeners are like, what's an activist <laughs> poet? Yeah, right, I'm good. Poets <laughs> rule the world. Right. <laughs> so, but I was aware suddenly of that tendency and that comfort of intellectualizing poetics or intellectualizing anything that we do. And it can be very comforting and remove you from rolling up your sleeves and living in the world. And I think maybe that's just what I needed to go through in my 20s was mm. to be in that world, but still really searching for how how do I live? So really what broke like you yoga? out of it? Yoga. Oh ah. <laughs> It really did. Yeah, yoga. um, I was pretty uh, an unhealthy vegetarian probably by my late 20s, early 30s. Really couldn't concentrate very well. I remember trying to read cosmic comics, this series of short stories that I was supposed to teach, and the words were sort of bouncing on the page. Pretty distressed. I tried to meditate off and on throughout my 20s, but couldn't really keep up with it. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was like, okay. I, I took a six-week yoga class at UT Austin. I was like, I need to get back to yoga. And I did. And it really took root. And I could sound like a really corny yoga testimonial, <laughs> but I'm not going to go there. I would just say that was my first entry point in so many ways into living in this body, in this world, that also shifted.
1: Yeah. It's it's so Everything. interesting. Now, it, isn't it? It's... Um... So much is pointing towards, um, I, I'm hearing the word embodied embodiment mm. constantly these days, Uh van der Kolk and Beau mm. Forbes and all these people who are doing all this work on PTSD and recovery from mm. trauma and, you know, and increasingly that world is saying, if you don't actually address, you know, bring the body back into the picture, you know, and reconnect you with a sense of, of movement. And so you can actually feel that, that, you know, nothing ever gets better. and it's still counterintuitive I think for a lot of people that if you're if you're having struggles from the chin up one of the most powerful ways to unwind that and navigate your way through it is start from the body and like let it work its way up into the head.
0: It's so true and it is counterintuitive and I can remember some of my first yoga classes that you know the teacher would say something you know kind of yogic like Feel the energy in your right toes, and I'd be like, Oh my god, I can feel it. (laughs) You know, it's like there is a right toe. Um, but yeah, it and it really attuned me to some of those things like somatic markers, like just like really paying attention to the subtle registers of how I feel, really paying attention. You know, we use these phrases like "what matters," but you know, it did start to attune me to you know what matters and what am I doing and how am I living. So um, it's it's curious too what you say about the movement of embodiment. Just as an example, that festival that I attended yeah. it started eight years ago, and I uh, and two other poets had led a workshop that actually tried to integrate yoga, but we were just allowed to talk about it. This time, eight years later, there were so many workshops that integrated movement and Mm -hmm. embodiment into the activist of of poetry. So, yeah, I'm seeing it in a a number of fields. And I think it was Daniel Goldman in his book Focus who really gets into some of this uh, somatic research about like people who seem to have a North Star are ones who do have access to those little subtle tremors in the body that helped them navigate important decisions.
1: Yeah. Which also, I, I'm curious also, because you're know, your, one of your earlier threads was, you know, to not lose your, what was it? Create, you didn't call it- Lose my imagination, imagination. yeah. But the other was to and, and pay to attention. Pay attention to the day. Yeah. Um, right. So it sounds like as you move from your 20s into your early 30s, you were deep into your imagination, but it sounds like in a way losing, you weren't paying attention as much. Yeah. you were paying attention the way the thing you were paying attention to became less and less the deeper thing and through the practice um, and through, it sort of shifted yeah. what you were actually paying attention to.
0: It did, and i I lost myself in many ways in my twenties in, in work and and I can still do that. I can still like be the good worker uh, and you and me both yeah, <laughs> you know and it, it can be another sort of intellectual escape, no. but it's different with both teaching and with the work that I do now in always wanting to serve the other Mm. and wanting to roll up my sleeves and do the best for, for that other. Right. And still like, but what about the other stuff in between? And it's the stuff in between that I'm appreciating more and more. The, you know, two year old who's, like screaming and as inconsolable and like all of that other stuff that we don't consider part of the creative life or the intellectual life. Like I'm, I'm more and more inclusive as I get more and more gray that all of that stuff is actually, it's like the connective tissue of what makes it all interesting. So yeah, you're right. I was gradually moving more and more back into
1: how am I living? Like how am I living and how am I really paying attention to the day? Yeah. yeah. Which seems like it also led you on, I mean, that six week course then led you around the world studying in Southern India. You you went deep down that rabbit hole.
0: <laughs> I did go deep down that rabbit hole. That was a six week class in, at the University of Texas at Austin. But right. when I got into yoga, I dove deep. You're right. It was like, oh, this is my new PhD, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but different. Um, so yeah, I immersed myself in the yogic texts Um Even started making comparisons to some of the early neuroscience, like what was happening to me? Because I was getting my concentration back Mm. and I was feeling so alive and my heart cracks open. I'm like, what is going on with me? So what do I do? You know, intellectual light goes and tries to study it. And I did go to South India, study with my teacher, TKV Desikachar, and really continue to just get cracked open, like spending a year crying, but not knowing why. Mm. And I think I was... Yeah, who knows why, but probably grieving whatever was shifting, you know? And just like, you know, you cry amidst beautiful transitions sometimes, and that's that's kind of what was happening for me too. Like I was just suddenly opening up to
1: different possibilities of living. Were you do you remember during that window of time was there was there fear that was part of your experience?
0: Oh, yeah. Because um, you know, for twelve years or so, I kind of locked into this identity of the hardworking writer, intellectual, teacher. um, Had kind of led this sort of ascetic life, not in any real relationships, and not dealing with the messiness of what was outside of my little protected life. And um, so, yeah, there was there was a great deal of fear of what if I leave teaching what if I what will my academic friends think of this guy who's like because it I mean when was this like late 90s early 2000s Mm. it's becoming popular but not like it's not yet I mean that's (laughs) the whole like Ram Dass that crew
1: was another 10 (laughs) years earlier yeah exactly
0: so yeah there was fear that I see happening with people with whom I work, like I was afraid of the wrong things really like, oh, what will my academic friends think? And they were like, go for it. And like, why don't you come and talk to our MFA program about the soul of writing and Mm. so. And that in fact led to a book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which (laughs) kind of brought it all together. Did, yeah. The journey from the center to the page did bring it all together, brought a lot together for me and really brought even the 20s forward into this new realm, mm. like being so immersed in writing and craft. Even in my 20s, I have to say, Jonathan, I was teaching some courses where the way I would teach writing, I was really trying to teach them how how to perceive. And I would take them outdoors. I would take them to cemeteries and like really see what's right in front of you. And that's the way I tried to approach writing and craft too we would study all the elements of traditional craft but in the context of how are you living mm-hmm. as a writer so it was bringing that forward in a very real way in the journey from the center to the page yeah that yeah. that integrates yoga philosophy and practices yeah in the writing
1: um what was your intention when you wrote that book
0: my intention was to help people my purpose was to help writers it was geared toward writers open up to the possibility of bringing in some yoga philosophy and yoga practice into embodying their writing
1: life. Um, So you kind of wanted that to be the inciting incident in their lives and and open them to follow a path similar to what you had explored.
0: Similar to what I had explored and what I started testing out. That's right. Because before the book, I even started testing it out in some workshops And, uh, had one of my yoga teachers green lights to like, yeah, you know, here's a studio. Why don't you invite some people? And it started to really take off, which helped me see that I wasn't completely crazy because really I thought no one else is going to have this sort of experience of what Mm -hmm. I'm dealing with. And I started integrating some of yoga skillful means into a process and it, yeah, completely lit up and which led to the book and further reinforcing that I wasn't completely nuts
1: that this... Could actually
0: Well, work. I don't know about
1: that. I will, <laughs> not in that way. <laughs> I am a little by way, so. <laughs> This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAS Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies, all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors Craig Robinson and John Calipari. So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish, right, what the reward is, what's at the end, and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you want to get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks. Because if you set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather Most storms, if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So, listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain you can access tomorrow's innovation today with Investco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So, thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Investco QQQ and produced by ACAS Creative. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit investco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Investco is not affiliated with ACAS Creative. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more what would you like the power to do Bank of America N.A. copyright 2024 imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time it's amazing how just sort of like one thing led to another which led to another which led to another but my sense is though you know there's the the classic you know take the step and have faith that then you know like that the next the next step in the path will just appear as you reach your foot out I always struggle with that yeah I don't see you as a person who is just completely comfortable with that idea either yeah although, although it seems that, like a lot that, of your life has been lived that way I
0: completely agree and yeah um, You know, my astrology friends say, okay, you're Pisces, Virgo, rising. So they don't see the Pisces in me, whatever that means to you. Yeah, uh, there was that time when for a few years I was completely cracked open. I moved from Dallas to Woodstock and I'm the barefoot yogi rider,
1: so to speak and i'm guessing in woodstock you weren't the only <laughs> barefoot yogi writer by the way exactly. if you're gonna go anywhere exactly. and do that it's like <laughs> yeah. what's that writer doing with shoes on freak
0: <laughs> no to put it in context i would write my friends and say you know some some towns have a village idiot Woodstock is a village of idiots and I feel right at home. So <laughs> sorry to my Woodstock friends, but, you know, I mean that the most beautiful sense, like everybody's doing their own thing and they feel right, right at home doing that. So, yeah, there were those years and, and yet there was also a great discomfort. So I can remember a couple of years when I'm deeply immersed in yoga and, and there were times when my mind would feel blank and I would freak out like, oh, my God, I've really lost my mind. Like I've swallowed the Kool-Aid. I can't think. And it was scary not to be able to think. And so that – and there was also the discomfort of I'm not working hard enough. So there was was a time, you know, uh, in those years when I was uncomfortable with that. But I was still – those years taught me I don't have – I don't mind saying I don't have an explicit faith in a God. But those years seemed – to teach me what faith was about, which is that root uh, about a certain mental repose in handling whatever comes your way in a sort of faith in life and existence. And I did trust that things would unfold and they did. It was later where I did become a little bit more deliberate and say, okay, I kind of need to grow up for the eighth time since I was 18 years old.
1: And- <laughs> so where did that take you?
0: And that started really when I met Hillary. Mm. and um, Who's now your wife. Who's now my wife. Mm. And it was like, oh, solid relationship for the first time. Really solid relationship. We buy a farmhouse together before we're married. And it was like, oh, solid foundation, mortgage, marriage. And really, I felt the solidity and foundation. And for the first time, I started to think, maybe I need to start thinking ahead. And thinking now that I don't have a comfort of a teaching position and so forth, I need maybe think about business which i'd been so anti in austin mm. i can remember you know hoping when the savings and loan debacle happened in 1984 85 just hoping it would all crash you know i was a communist in austin that's where you go to become a communist in texas or anything <laughs> or anything right <laughs> so i circled back around this is like 2006 or so and thought okay i can develop a business started getting serious about it started looking around uh, I was maybe around that time, too, when I started becoming aware of what you were doing, what other people were doing. I had a business advisor kind of like clue me into some other people. I was like, oh, uh, people are doing business differently mm. than what I imagined. Went to Scott Belsky's 99U. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, oh, my God, this is like the Omega Institute meets business. What's going Not- on here? You know, I hear Tony Schwartz talking from his yoga back. I'm like, wow. Okay. I could I could be at home doing Something differently, yeah. So is that solidity? And I thought, well, you know, if there are going to be some young wonderlings wandering
1: around in the future too, I should kind of start thinking, you know, about the future. Yeah. So it's interesting because it's a combination. I think it sounds like it's a combination of you reaching a point in your life where things started to stabilize, and you start to look at what you wanted to build on a sustained basis. And was so you're 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 a papa now.
0: Yeah, papa,
1: two little ones. So at that point was the, in your head, the idea that, you know, like I would, I see myself, I see this leading potentially to a family and and maybe it's time to figure out a way to play that role where I can provide whatever illusion of stability (laughs) we can grab for.
0: Yeah. And it was uncomfortable because, you know, I didn't want to be quote the provider and, you know, Hillary has her own business and always has. And we bought the farmhouse like 50, 50, and it was clear, like, you know, she was going to keep, her finances and so forth. So, you know, to be clear, I'm not, quote, the provider of the family in that sense. But it was like, yeah, I do need to provide. Right. And it was a new conception for me. And again, you know, just even thinking about my father. Yeah, that's where my mind my yeah, is going with this. Yeah. Huh. Because, yeah, because my father, we were, you know, middle class in West Side Fort Worth. He never owned a house. We went from nice rent house to nice rent house like every year or two. It must have driven my mother nuts, but I loved it because I was in a new home, you know, every year or two. Never wanted that. So things were kind of unstable in retrospect. So I couldn't even envision myself being a father for the longest time. And then I met Hillary. And, like, honestly, I was like, ooh, children maybe. Where are they coming from And my So I could start to see it and start to say, well, maybe I could be a father. Maybe I could. And my friends are like, you know, you're never ready for it. You just have to do it. I'm like, no, no, I can be ready for it. So yeah, that it was all that sort of thinking like, hey, this is a different phase in my life. So again, why not embrace it the way I embraced the yogic age? Why not embrace this age and
1: stage? Mm -hmm. So that was around 2006, 2007. So- as we sit here today, you've, you've written more for sure. You have embraced the intersection between business and art, more specifically writing and art, but, but certainly, you know, you expanded beyond that as well. You've got a company called Tracking Wonder and I'm, I'm curious, what are you building with it? What is it? So there's still
0: a lot of Unknown about where it's going, but what it is um yeah, I have a team of of eight people you could say it's a it's a boutique consultancy uh it started it started Jonathan as my intellectual idea for it like the next book and the next way of my life like that was just what I discovered actually in two thousand five two thousand and six was that I wanted to track wonder it's been that early deconstruct track wonder yeah so So wonder, and I came across it while researching for the journey from the center to the page, actually. I was like, God, there's this thing about writing that I can only describe as wonder and surprise that has to go in the book. And actually, while in India, I came across this yogic text called the Shiva Sutras. That's one of the few yoga books that even reference its yoga. So I'll just say in short that wonder is like, it is the emotional, cognitive, aesthetic experience that most cracks us open to what is real and to what is here and what is true. It is the experience that opens us up to that. It's at the heart of the creative impulse. And once I started to understand that, I also realized that it was wonder as part of what I've been pursuing all along. That when I was grieving my imagination, it was in part that desire to have that space of wonder. I was like, oh my god, this is like my sort of life, <laughs> you know, <laughs> coming right back in front of me. So, Tracking Wonder became like the focus of my next project. And then as I got serious about business, it was like, well, I work with all these authors helping them shape their proposals and develop their books. I'm going to transition my my business to Tracking Wonder. But that led to me seeing some other problems that those authors and other people attracted to what I was doing were having. Like, how do I get my act together and focus? And at this time, 2006, 2007, a lot of people were talking about get things done, be super productive. They still are. Doesn't always work with it the artist mind. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't always work with the artist mind. And there's something else that I think we all hunger for, whether we have an artist mind or not, which is delight, yeah. right? And spaciousness. So I started bringing some of my... Still, I started writing for psychology today on the science of creativity and started bringing some of that knowledge forward and applicable to how do you live your life, be productive, but still quote, track this, this experience of wonder and being open to not only to what's real in front of you, but to who you are. Right. So as we've been talking about, you know, the evolution of my life, part of the wonder is to even look at how your identity shape shifts over the years and what you're capable of doing over the years. So I tracked that and then a number of my author clients were having problems with this thing called branding and platform building. We would sell their book proposals, but then still people would know about them. So I did deep dives about five years ago into branding, got comfortable with that. Being a Texan, branding had a certain connotation of cattle mm. that I didn't like. So, But I found it as a creative, meaningful process and started developing some frameworks and a program that further extended Tracking Wonder to reach people and engage people far beyond the author realm. Mm. So that's what we've been building out is helping professionals and now even small teams shape their message driven by their key ideals. That has integrity and that comes out in their books, it comes out in their brand stories and other facets. So, what am I building? So, still, Jonathan, though, like, it's like, okay, we're building this community. We've got this big community that's international now. They're like, oh, we're building this community of people who they tell us wow, this is like its own land, like Tracking Wonder has its own language. (laughs) So they're reflecting back to me what we're building, but honestly, Jonathan, I still don't know where it's going. And and so it sounds really uncomfortable for me to say in public, but the people in my team know that even four or five years ago, like there's one consultant who, you know, like four years ago, I was like, look, I don't know where we're going, but do you want to come along? Because let's just see what happens in this and we keep reflecting back on yeah this is what we're doing and this is where we think we're going but if i told you i ha- i have a 5 year plan i'd be a complete liar
1: yeah but but isn't that the very definition of tracking wander i mean maybe for maybe <laughs> for you the whole thing is you're not it's not what you're building It's just your ability to wake up every day and let your head hit the pillow and say, and ask the question, have I tracked wonder today? Yeah, And if you can answer yes, and then the next day, and then the next, and the next, that wouldn't, wouldn't the moment you almost make what you're building so concrete, you're no longer tracking wonder because the wonder becomes defined and it's no longer a question.
0: And that's so beautifully said. I, I, I'm going to, replay that that was just beautifully said because that's a, uh, and I'll, t- I'll confess something too in 2005 2006 i sent out a quick book proposal to my agent on a book called tracking wonder mm. and it was so unbaked mm-hmm. because i hadn't really lived it all yet and I hadn't really cracked myself open so absolutely yeah, yeah it makes a lot of perennially sense,
1: open. yeah there's something i want to uh i want to read it's actually from your website because there's another Side of tracking wonder for mm. you. You write, still, when I became a father, I looked into my first infant girl's sky wide blue eyes and made a silent twofold vow to learn again from her the art of not knowing and to live a life so rich with skillful creativity and wonder that she would want to become a grown up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This is where you try to make me cry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That came after two, a pretty hard period. We had a house fire for like 15 months and she was born during that 15 months. I had Lyme's disease twice in this 15 months. And, um, and the whole time, the whole 15 months, I'm like, where's the wonder. Right. And because that's the real practice. And just deliberately tracking it, and uh, and I still had limes after the after the fire, and uh, had this baby in my arms. And there were times when I I would um, not be in self pity at night, but um, was afraid that I would never be this like larger than life papa, you know, that I really wanted to be. But when I did. You know, it was like one of those great classic October New York mornings and took her on a walk and looked in those eyes. And I can't remember exactly what I said out loud, but it was something like, I will wonder for you. And then later it was like, yeah, I want to be the sort of grown-up that she will not want to cling to her childhood but cannot wait to become a grown-up. Because I think we grown-ups, we... When we look to children and say, "Oh, the beauty and innocence of children! Oh, to be a child again," we completely negate the beauty of being a grown-up over and over again. And that's the kind of that's the kind of grown-up I want to be for my
1: little girls. Yeah, so it's not just uh, tracking wonder isn't your brand. It's why you're here. <laughs> yeah. It's not your company. It's why you're here.
0: It's completely true. No. it's completely true,
1: and. Um, I feel so
0: fortunate. I feel feel fortunate that that's true. And I feel fortunate that I've realized that, that for whatever reasons, I've come to realize that that is is why I'm here. Mm. And so my father-in-law, just as a side note, like it's a curious thing. He said, only you could make a living tracking wonder. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and that is so true on
1: so many levels, right? <laughs> Probably no argument there, right? <laughs> um but only everyone else can be alive tracking wonder. Yeah. You uh you have a you've never stopped writing poetry. I, I saw you uh do a nice live read at Camp GLP a couple of years back, I think last year too. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And you actually have a new book out. So can I, and I? I don't know if you have it with you. If not, I, I actually have. Oh. Um, would you read something? Oh, sure. I'd, I'd love to. So let's see. What
0: are you in the, what are you in the mood for? Because I know you've read this. from It's a, a Friday afternoon.
1: Heading into the summer. What do you got? Hmm. By the way, it's called The Coat Thief. Yeah, Coat Thief. So right, know um... the just Coat Thief. <laughs> like
0: Facebook, know the Facebook. <laughs> That's right. How about I'll read Coat Thief, and you and I will read Today's the Day. That that sounds good. Cool? Like yeah. Okay. Coat Thief. I've been collecting coats along the streets for weeks in case I'm caught naked this winter. Panic strikes me some nights that I will awaken with nothing, so I'm preparing. Neighbors have surrendered their raggedy London fogs, their vinyl yellow rain slickers, even an old fox skin coat with holes at the seams from someone's grandmother's attic. Coats pile the back bedroom and cover my backyard bushes like provisions. I will not be caught naked this winter. Go ahead, you say, and try to armor yourself with other people's sleeves, but there's no getting ready for waking up bewildered in the middle of the night, in the middle of your life, in the middle of a downtown street with nothing, not even your wits, or yourself in your possession. You could be walking down lover's lane, your briefcase in hand, your heart in the other, and an SUV military vehicle could whip by and strip you of your suit, your title, your spouse, your house. You could be hiking after dark in Montana's cryptic mountains and lightning could strip you of your boots, your roots, your backpack, your spine. You could be stripped of everything at any moment. So, Why wait, you say. Why not go naked now? Live with the lyric and let me sing you into a lyrical life. Your body a lyre whose strings strum along the beats of my heart's drum. Before I can respond, you strip me of all words and steal all my coats. Beautiful. So let's try Today is the Day oh, together. Cool. Yeah. All right. So, uh, <laughs> me, 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 mm. me, me. Get Jonathan Fields reading some poetry. All right. We'll just alternate stanzas. Oh, you didn't tell me it was 40 <laughs> pages. <laughs> this is an epic poem on the history right. of America The Odyssey, part two. <laughs> Today is the day. So I'll read the first stanza, you read the next. All right.
1: right this is the day you were supposed to be accountable the eggs begged to be gathered the beans to be counted the books to be balanced but you awoke instead to your neighbor's peacock strutting its song from the shed top so you have wasted the entire morning speaking to the blue stones No, to just
0: this one blue stone that sits amidst a stream, its face like a grandmother, its weighty voice you've just begun to hear. This is the day.
1: You were supposed to be accountable. What happened? The sun slips past noon and the peacock takes a nap. And all you can account for is this one song you've made for this
0: one stone who is just beginning to hear you?
1: That was fun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was fun.
1: (laughs) Thanks for doing that. (laughs) Thank you. So as you know, we always wrap with one uh, Mm. question. It feels like the right time to come full circle. This is called Good Life Project. So I offer that phrase to you to live a good life. What comes up? Mm. Well, I think from
0: our conversation, it is about being present, paying attention so much that By the end of the day, by the end of a life, you can say this was a life worth remembering.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone. If you have an iPhone, you just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And For those of you, our awesome community, who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.